Chronic wasting disease is a very different entity. It appears to be a, a protein that can self-replicate and or recruit normal protein to be this abnormal protein. When this animal does die and it gets in the environment, it stays a hell of a long time. It doesn't go away. So now put that in the context of National Elk Refuge. Repeatedly, we use these same feed grounds. So now we not only have a disease that doesn't go away, is in the environment for a long time, but we have a disease that the animal doesn't mount an immune response to, and it's going to die from it. Hi, I'm Hannah Haberman. And I'm Jesse Bryant. This is Yonder Lies. Wherever you are, we hope this episode finds you staying safe and healthy. Like a lot of folks, we've been spending most of our time in our house. We're recording this from our living room here in Jackson. And in our living room, there's a big window that looks out north across East Broadway. It's provided us a lot of entertainment these last few months and these last few weeks. People walking their dogs, taking a quick stroll on their break from the nearby hospital, biking, running, skateboarding, roller skating, you name it. And while the foreground has provided a lot of people watching opportunities, all this is unfolding in front of a pretty stunning backdrop. We live right across the street from the National Elk Refuge, 24,700 acres of protected land where thousands of elk come to winter each year. Yeah, honestly, it's pretty idyllic. The stuff of postcards and paintings and tourism advertisements. Huge herds of elk with the tips of the snow-blanketed Tetons peeking out over a nearby butte. There's no getting around the fact that it's a pretty good view. Every so often, though, something disrupts this picturesque scene. From our window, we've watched a big green tractor make its way across the refuge. And although the tractor does seem a little bit out of place, it's what comes after it that feels more abnormal. An almost comically long line of elk running after the tractor like dogs chasing after a ball or in pursuit of a tasty treat. It looks a bit like videos you maybe have seen of elk or caribou migrating across incredible distances in the far north. A stream of sinewy, strong bodies moving together like a river, like a single body made up of many. But in actuality, they're chasing this green and yellow tractor, and they're chasing the tractor because the tractor is spewing out alfalfa pellets. And it's winter, and food is scarce, and you can best believe the elk are excited about these pellets. It's beautiful and frankly pretty bizarre. But these elk chasing after the tractor are a part of a pattern, a history, part of something much bigger. What's been happening outside of our window all winter is at the center of a really complicated, messy, and potentially catastrophic controversy. It's a story with a lot of moving and interconnected pieces, different management agencies and stakeholders with interests that span across borders and state lines. There's scientists and data telling us things could get really bad. There's some who agree with that, others who don't. There's people advocating for acting now, before things get worse, and people saying we should see what happens, let it all play out. It's a story that blurs the line between nature and society and challenges our assumptions about what is wild and what is not. There's a lot at stake, businesses, money, ways of life, and the health of the environment 
animals, and maybe even people. And at the heart of it all, there's a disease, one that's hard to detect, incurable, and spreading. Sound familiar? You might think we're talking about COVID, but we're talking about CWD, or chronic wasting disease. CWD is a very real issue in the American West and throughout the world, with very real and very serious implications for the health of deer, elk, and Western ecosystems as we know them. There's a ton of similarities between the two, and as COVID has shown us, time and knowledge are of the essence. So first things first, what is CWD? Where did it start? What are its symptoms? How does it move? And what does it have to do with the National Elk Refuge? Under a microscope, a normal prion looks like any protein you might see in a typical animal cell or bacteria. In a healthy form, these proteins are sleek and compact sculptures composed of tightly wound amino acids in alpha helices and neatly folded beta sheets. Disease prions, though, particularly those that cause chronic wasting disease, look different. They're messy, unraveled, even disheveled clumps of matter, often with loose, slinky-like beta helices drooping off in all directions. Remember slinkies? those loosely raveled toys for kids, a disease prion is like that. And over time, imagine these messy, misfolded slinkies begin to stick to one another and accumulate in bunches and become a problem. Again, we're not talking about a bacterial disease like brucellosis, tuberculosis, or tetanus, nor a viral disease like influenza, the common cold, or coronavirus. We're talking about a problem with the prions, the proteins themselves, the building blocks of all life. When these proteins begin to unravel and tangle like a mass of jumbled up slinkies, they begin to accumulate in the brain tissue. And as they do, the surface of the brain begins to look less like a brain and more like a sponge. Just like other brain diseases, the effects on deer, elk, and other cervids are widespread and irreversible. The signs of CWD usually begin with a lack of appetite, followed by weight loss. Then there's what looks like drunkenness, stumbling, lethargy, and eventually death. And then there's one other piece. There's no way to test an animal for CWD until it's dead. Yikes. (laughs) That sounds pretty terrible. Can you talk a little bit about where CWD came from? Yeah, sure. There's not really any consensus on the prion disease's real origin story. It may have been a derivative of a similar disease called scrapie, which is common in domestic sheep populations. And there's some other hypotheses out there too. And although the Big Bang origin moment may never really be identified explicitly, what we do know is that CWD appeared for the first time in the late 1960s in mule deer that were being held in a wildlife research facility in Colorado. In the 1970s, researchers finally learned that CWD was in fact a prion disease, which was good to know, but also terrible to find out. Good to know, but terrible to find out? What do you mean? Yeah, well, one of the big problems with prions being basically just tiny bunches of non-living matter is the question of how to eradicate them. Right now, there's a rush to find a vaccine and a treatment for coronavirus, which we're told 
is one to four years out. That feels like a long time, but at least with corona being a viral disease, there's some sort of hope on the horizon. The medical techniques that destroy bacterial and viral diseases, antibacterials and antivirals, have no effect on prions, since prions are literally just proteins. So what you're saying is the biological nature of CWD was clearly identified about 50 years ago, and we still have no treatment. And since the agent responsible for CWD is literally just a tangled bunch of proteins, these slinkies, it can live on and in a given landscape for a long time. So in the way that COVID can live for a few days on a surface, like a doorknob, before being transmitted to someone else, CWD can live in an environment for many years. It's super resilient. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not saying this to compare the potential impact of CWD to that of COVID. I'm just offering this because COVID now feels like a pretty tangible comparison point. We're all thinking about it in some form or another. The protein malfunction that causes CWD is transmitted between individuals via feces, urine, and saliva, where, again, it can remain for as much as a decade. Not only that, but prions can infect soil and plants, which means not only is it passed directly between animals, but also indirectly via the landscape. So transmission can be as easy as one elk grazing in an area, getting saliva on the soil, a grassroot uptaking that prion, and then days or even years later, another elk coming and eating grass in the same spot. And the incubation period of the disease, that is the delay between ingestion and when symptoms begin to appear, is more than 16 months. Talk about hard to track. I know, right? So where is CWD? Since its discovery in Colorado, CWD has been found in domestic and captive populations of deer and elk in basically the entire central part of North America, from Texas to Alberta, and as far east as Quebec and New York. Cases have been found in 26 states and three Canadian provinces, as well as Finland, Norway, Sweden, and South Korea. It's been found in free-ranging wild populations as well as in privately run game farms. CWD has been detected in diffuse wild populations from Tennessee to Saskatchewan, but if you look at a heat map of where cases have occurred, the true epicenter today in wild deer and elk populations is right where Colorado, Nebraska, and Wyoming meet. In Wyoming, CWD was first detected in mule deer in 1985 and has been spreading slowly but persistently ever since. Broadly, you can understand the spread of CWD to be from southeast to northwest, and right now, for us here in Jackson Hole, CWD is knocking on our doorstep. Totally. In 2018, following claims made by Wyoming Game and Fish that it could take years for CWD to reach the heart of Greater Yellowstone, a mule deer tested positive in Grand Teton National Park within miles of the elk refuge. Just this past fall, in October 2019, Wyoming Game and Fish confirmed CWD in a mule deer just south of here in Bondurant, Wyoming, and officials in Montana confirmed a case in elk near Red Lodge, just north of Yellowstone National Park. Which is to say, CWD isn't just knocking on our doorstep, it's breaking down the door. (laughs) Talk about a rude awakening. 
So in summary, given our best data, here are some of the facts. CWD is a protein, or prion, disease that has no cure, and for now, affects only cervids, deer species. For decades, this disease has been making a slow but steady creep through mostly mule deer, but elk populations as well, from east to west across Wyoming. And in recent years, multiple confirmed cases of CWD were detected in both mule deer and elk in close proximity to the National Elk Refuge and the neighboring national parks. Given all this, why does this matter for Jackson Hole and the surrounding communities? What can be done about chronic wasting disease? Good questions. But before we dig into the details from a 30,000-foot view, it's worth pointing out that, like in the case of COVID, there are largely two camps of thought about this slow-motion disaster. One that is proactive and one that is reactive. We've got to do something now versus let's just wait and see. What's also interesting is that there's actually a pretty clear common interest to maintain a healthy elk population on the Jackson Hole landscape. We can argue over definitions, but everyone essentially agrees on that. And that's because the Jackson Hole elk herd is central to both the cultural and economic livelihood of those who call this place home. And it's been that way for a long time. The white settlement of the town of Jackson and its sprawling cattle ranching operations throughout the valley were also a shock to the ancient migration patterns of what we now call the Jackson elk herd. This is similar to the disruption of the bighorn sheep migration that ultimately got them stuck in the Tetons year-round, as we've explored in a previous episode. In the early 1900s, the town of Jackson and surrounding cattle ranches were developed by our settler society right in the middle of the winter range of the Jackson elk herd. The town had a twofold effect. First, it reduced grazing opportunities for the elk, and second, in some ways it cut off the herd's migration pathway to winter ranges that lay further to the south. These impacts on the elk herd had, as you can imagine, dire consequences. You might remember John Doherty, a past Grand Teton National Park historian, from the very first episode we made which feels like forever ago. Here's Doherty explaining the impacts of white settlement on elk herds around Jackson. But they could started looking at what was happening to the elk and became very concerned. The first thing that happened, the settlers coming in and preempting the land, they took up the winter habitat of the elk, which migrated, of course, from the southern part of Yellowstone, migrate seasonally, and they actually used to go down as far as the Red Desert, down into the Green River Valley. Well, when the pioneers came in and took up homesteads, of course, that cut off their migratory routes, also took away their winter range. So they started staying longer and more often in Jackson Hole itself, right in this area. And of course, the winters are still pretty severe here, so the winter kill became much higher. And what happened with the elk uh, overpopulated, there was a lot of the wolves were killed off and natural predators, the elk uh, populated. Uh, population went up, and of course the range was less and less, you had massive die-offs, and that created a real uproar. In the winter of 1909 to 1910, there were enormous elk die-offs due to starvation. Some in town said that you could literally walk miles across the valley on the bodies of dead elk without ever touching the ground. Whether or not that was true, in the year that followed, horrific photographs of the scene made their way to Washington, D.C., 
and in 1911, at the request of the state of Wyoming, Congress appropriated $20,000 for, quote, feeding, protecting, and removing elk in Jackson Hole in the vicinity. And in 1912, they established the National Elk Refuge as a winter game reserve. In 1927, the refuge's purpose was expanded to, quote, for grazing of, and as a refuge for, American elk and other big game animals. In Doherty's opinion, much of this change came about because of a blossoming conservation ethic amongst early white settlers. It was kind of interesting in Jackson Hole, if you look back at it, a lot of local pioneers were conservationists in their own way too. They started to look at what was happening to the elk in this valley. And uh, I think a lot of the people, I don't know, I think of the Jackson Hole people, it's the feeling I have that a lot of the early pioneers really felt very protected toward the herd. I mean, that wasn't to say they wouldn't go out and shoot one to put in the smokehouse or for their own food, which legally might have been considered poaching, but they went out and used that animal for their subsistence, and that animal was important to them because of the rich Easterners and Europeans that came here and the pioneering of the uh, packing industry, or the hunting and packing, which became a real source of income in these early years. Uh, Stephen Leake, kind of an old pioneer in the valley, uh, took photographs that generated national publicity. And the uh, state of Wyoming and federal government started a, started a feeding program in 1911 and formed an elk refuge in 1912. So we had the beginnings there. Now that was a real change for these people. Here you have pioneers in this valley who really didn't care to have the federal government involved in much of anything, saying, yeah, we want an elk refuge and we do want federal involvement. That's a real change in attitudes, and I think it's a fundamental change. At this time, this course of action made a lot of sense. It kept elk away from the cattle ranchers, it kept the elk around to hunt, eat, and profit from, and there wasn't yet any real awareness of the ramifications of disease and its effects on landscape ecology. But now, we're more than a hundred years past that. And to front load this for those who might not know, Wild elk are still fed on the National Elk Refuge throughout the winter, and it's this feeding program and the feeding that also takes place on 22 other state-run feed grounds that's at the center of the policy problems surrounding chronic wasting disease. But we'll get there. Support for Yonder Lies comes from Think WY, Wyoming Humanities. Wyoming Humanities supports programs, grants, and initiatives in Teton County and across Wyoming that explore history, culture, and the human experience. To learn more about the Wyoming Humanities Council, visit thinkwy.org. Again, that's thinkwy.org. Today, the National Elk Refuge spans from the town of Jackson to Grand Teton National Park. Contrary to what the name might suggest, it's not just home to elk. It also provides habitat for bison, pronghorn, swans, eagles, and trout, just to name a few. It's managed by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and is guided by the mission and goals of the National Wildlife Refuge System, which is to administer a national network of lands and waters for the conservation, management, and, where appropriate, restoration of the fish, wildlife, and plant resources and their habitats within the United States for the benefit of present and future generations of Americans. I mean, that sounds pretty good. I feel like 
nobody would really disagree with that mission. But the question of living up to that mission? That feels like something else entirely. For instance, the largest nuclear test ever performed by the federal government, the Kanakin test, happened in the Aleutian Islands National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. The blast, which was 400 times the size of Hiroshima, destroyed thousands of animals and poisoned hundreds of native Aleut people. A more recent ongoing dispute involving the National Wildlife Refuge system is the opening of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling. This has been an ongoing fight by Republican politicians since 1977, which sort of ended three years ago when the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 opened the wildlife refuge to drilling. Still, the issue is facing ongoing litigation today and is highly contested by indigenous and environmental activism groups. This is just to say that, like all federal land, the fates of wildlife refuges are always blurry and depend largely on the goals of those in power. We're likely never going to test nukes on the elk refuge, nor should we expect fracking rigs to show up anytime soon. On the Elk Refuge, the lines are fortunately less blurry than in places like the Aleutian Chain, since so many of those in power in our settler society rely on the elk for their livelihood. Those who rely directly on the Jackson Elk Herd include hunting guides, wildlife viewing companies, wildlife technicians, biologists, and a huge number of conservation nonprofits here in Jackson. The presence of elk and other megafauna is one of the central drivers of tourism here in Jackson, and thus an indirect driver of all those businesses that benefit from the tourism. All retail, real estate, restaurants, well, pretty much everything. In some ways, we're fortunate here in Jackson that the pressing question facing the elk refuge is exactly how best to live up to the high-minded conservation principles of the refuge system, rather than how to deal with nuclear fallout. But the onslaught of CWD is again forcing us to clarify who believes what, who trusts who, and why. And this matters because, beyond the inherent right for wildlife to exist, the health of the Jackson elk herd is directly linked to the health of the town of Jackson. Here, a fact that's actually true everywhere is made much more obvious. That is, that ecology and economy are synonymous. So back to the National Elk Refuge. It's got four specific conservation goals. One, conserve grazing habitat for ungulates, i.e. hoofed creatures. Two, maintain healthy populations of elk and bison. Three, maintain numbers of animals in line with the population goals of Wyoming game and fish. And four, manage disease within elk and bison populations, ultimately to avoid transmission of disease from wild to domestic livestock. One important legal technicality to note here is that wildlife within state boundaries typically belonged to the state. So going back to 1912, remember that it was the state of Wyoming that asked Congress for money to start feeding elk in Jackson Hole. It's also worth noting that feeding like this does take place on 22 other state-run feed grounds in northwestern Wyoming, but nowhere else in the state. It also doesn't take place in the neighboring state of Montana, where state officials have repeatedly expressed concern over the tendency of the feed grounds to create ideal conditions for transmission of diseases, in particular, CWD. Montana has been very vocal about their opposition to Wyoming's feeding program. So vocal that, in 2017, the Montana legislature passed a unanimous resolution asking Wyoming to cease feeding. 
Basically, feeding isn't that popular with the other kids on the block. Here's former Chief of Wildlife Health for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Dr. Thomas Roth, explaining exactly why elsewhere, given the science on CWD, these feeding practices have been phased out. How does current management fit in with managing wildlife health? Uh, in veterinary medicine, if you want to get um, uh, a reliable clientele and have business all the time, go to a feedlot. And you will be dealing with pneumonias and GI problems and all sorts of things because that type of condition promotes infectious disease. If you were to ask me to design a system to maximize and amplify transmissible infectious disease, I'd tell you to go out there and crowd them together during the maximum stress period of winter and draw them in there, probably because feeding would be the easiest way to draw them in there, I'd use feed. We look at the feed grounds and, and the thousands of animals we crowd into a small area. That's probably the best wildlife scenario for exacerbating wildlife diseases. So we've got the U.S. Fish and Wildlife and Wyoming Game and Fish involved in elk feeding grounds. We've got the Bridger Teton National Forest, which is part of the U.S. Forest Service, who leases land to game and fish for the state feeding grounds. As if that wasn't enough overlap of agencies, the National Park Service is a player here too, as the elk herds which use these feeding grounds migrate through both Grand Teton National Park and Yellowstone. And on top of it all, we've got the businesses, nonprofits, and environmental groups who are invested in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in some way or another across different state boundaries. Basically, we've got a lot of different land management agencies either directly involved in the feeding of elk or highly impacted and therefore highly invested in these programs. Ooh, it's a lot of different players and speaks to the way in which elk know no boundaries. But let's rewind for a second. What does feeding actually entail? How does it work? Good question. On average, somewhere between 8,000 and 10,000 elk, give or take, come to the National Elk Refuge each winter, and a similar number visit the state-run feed grounds. Initially, elk on the National Elk Refuge were fed with baled hay, but in 1975, the refuge switched to primarily feeding with alfalfa pellets. The refuge also irrigates a series of fields to maintain higher levels of native plants and grasses to provide even more forage than just the alfalfa pellets. When feeding starts in any given year depends on a variety of factors. The National Elk Refuge's website states that feeding's initiation depends on, quote, elk numbers, the timing of migration, winter temperatures, snow depths, and the accessibility of standing forage, end quote. Biologists take these factors into account and then feed according to this cocktail of conditions. The website states that elk are fed an average of 70 days a year. But there have also been some mild winters where elk haven't been fed at all. At its core, this program challenges the myth of wilderness as disconnected from human impact or influence. For some wilderness lovers, discovering the fact that more than 20,000 elk in the most intact ecosystem in the lower 48 are fed alfalfa pellets throughout the winter can be a challenging realization. Even without CWD, feeding programs at the refuge and state-run feed grounds create some cognitive dissonance for some. Where is the line between so-called wildness and domestication? What are the moral implications of providing food for animals winter after winter? 
I definitely get how people might harbor dislike for the elk feeding programs purely on the grounds of a purist wilderness belief and the desire for a clear division between humans and nature. And although this century-old conservation project has made a lot of sense at times in its history, the present looks a little less clear, especially when you put CWD in the picture. But the debate now isn't about the past, but rather the present and the future. Even if CWD wasn't an issue, there is still some concern about the feed grounds serving as a vector for other types of diseases. Feed grounds are prime for transferring disease. You take a lot of animals, often from different geographies, and put them into a relatively concentrated space. And then what happens when you add CWD to the mix? To put it in COVID terms, feeding grounds are kind of like a grocery store where all the food is in just one grocery aisle. They create a highly congested, highly trafficked environment where sickness is much more easily transferred between animals. And then it can be transferred elsewhere as these animals disperse to their summer feeding grounds. So how should management of elk be adapted, given our unfortunate new environmental reality that includes chronic wasting disease? And in Jackson, it's important to mention that change must fight an uphill battle against an entrenched culture of feeding, one that inspires people to refer to the feeding programs in terms like these, from Harold Turner of Triangle X Ranch. If the elk feeding grounds were shut down, we would not only lose our base, our economic base, but we will, we will lose our heritage. To understand this, we'll assess the two real policy alternatives at play, the do-nothing option versus the feeding phase-out option. For each, we'll talk about what the best knowledge we have says and the worldviews that influence the opinions of people have formed around the issue. During this section, you'll hear the voices of a number of new folks. We've already heard from former Chief of Wildlife Health for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Dr. Thomas Roth, and from outfitter Harold Turner of Triangle X Ranch. And we'll hear more from other outfitters, conservationists, feeding technicians, and ranchers coming up. These audio interviews weren't conducted by us, but rather come from a 2011 documentary on elk feeding and chronic wasting disease called Feeding the Problem. The film was created by Danny Schmidt, who, among other accolades, continues to do work with National Geographic. He's generously given us permission to use these interviews to tell a more complete story. Feeding the Problem is free on Vimeo, so if you want to learn more after this, we strongly suggest you go check that out. And lastly, it's important to note here that these interviews were recorded in 2010, but in many ways, the contours of the debate have remained relatively similar today. With that being said, let's start with the do-nothing option. I think the first thing to get on the table here is what people who advocate for doing nothing believe the facts of the matter to be, and why. The two matters here are how much death we're talking about if CWD gets onto the refuge versus how much death we're talking about if we end feeding. Here's outfitter Glenn Taylor talking in 2010 about what he believes will happen if CWD gets onto the refuge. And supposing chronic wasting disease did hit out there, they, they'd say that they'll take out 60% of them. Well, 60% of 8,000 is 4,800. That's a little over half of them. The reason I'd like to see a larger number out there 
is because no matter how many they wipe out, there's still going to be more left. If they maintain a good high number, there's still going to be more left. And then here is feeding technician Bernie Holtz on how many elk he believes will die if we end feeding. If we eliminated feed grounds, uh, my professional opinion is is that we'd, uh, we'd end up having to reduce elk populations by, on the average, uh, by about 70 to 80 percent. And even further, here's Harold Turner again on what will happen if we end feeding. If we do away with the feed grounds, these game herds are going to be lost for everybody. Not just people living here, but for everybody in the world. They're going to be lost. And so generally, it seems those who are advocating for doing nothing believe that if CWD gets onto the refuge, 60% of the elk will die, whereas if we end feeding, somewhere between 70 and even 100% of the elk will die. And so then I think it's important to ask, who falls in this camp and why do they believe what they believe? This camp is made up primarily of hunting guides and outfitters like Glenn and Harold, who have for a long time enjoyed the superabundance of elk that the refuge provides, which allows them to give their clients a higher chance of killing an elk. This camp also, in general, includes ranchers who argue that if feeding is discontinued, regardless of how many elk die, those who survive will likely end up on their land mingling with their cattle and potentially pass on diseases like brucellosis, let alone eat all of their cow's hay. And then there are, of course, the Wyoming state land managers, who often side with the hunting community, in part because the revenue is quite dependent on the sale of hunting licenses. Broadly, those who advocate for the do-nothing alternative are animated by the myths of rugged individualism, skepticism toward the federal government, and most potently, the overwhelmingly American myth of Thomas Jefferson's Yaman Farmer or the belief that the ideal American is one who lives off their own private land that they manage intimately, and who is not tied up in the big, globalized, industrial world that is seen as corrupting to the soul. Today, these animating and moralizing stories also take the form of skepticism towards science itself. And really, when it comes down to it, how we come to agree on a collective, trusted set of facts is really at the crux of a lot of our politics today and CWD is no different. Here's Glenn Taylor again. Maybe today there's too much scientific demand. Maybe we need to manage from the seat of our pants is a good term, I think. Let the animals kind of do their thing. And we may be better off than trying to uh, initiate or use too much science to manage what um, maybe science shouldn't be doing that. And for Harold Turner, He's skeptical of the science because he believes that the scientists themselves have ulterior motives, i.e. to end the feeding and restore a more pure wilderness. Chronic wasting disease is, you might say, a vehicle. Not that it isn't a bad disease, because it is a bad disease, but has become a vehicle for a lot of other issues and it has become a vehicle to do away with feeding primarily. You know, to say that feeding elk or not feeding elk is going to save this elk herd or not save this elk herd, I don't think anybody knows. And 
we're not going to know until we get it. So for these folks, their set of facts seem to indicate that doing nothing would lead to less death in the elk herd. Another perspective on this side that you'll hear is that CWD is inevitable. So why would we do anything to mitigate the impact? And that's sort of a whole nother conversation, but I think that it's fair to say that the skepticism towards science or systemic institutional knowledge creation means that these data are coming from a more intuitive way of knowing, which I do think that there is merit to. Here's Thomas Roth on this. Science doesn't define what the, what the uh, uh, proper thing is to do. Science helps to define the conditions that'll be if you choose one vision over another. Science will help you understand what the advantages and disadvantages of particular systems are to your perspective. Uh, but it doesn't tell you what's right and what's wrong. What's right and what's wrong in this case is in some ways pretty clear in that, again, there's a pretty clear common interest, keeping a large and healthy elk herd on the Jackson Hole landscape. That said, there is a sense that what the do-nothing crew believes is right involves also ideas of heritage and tradition, while the same perhaps cannot be said for the other side. But I do think that in a sense that if we're trying to get the best facts about letting CWD run its course versus trying to do something about it, most everyone agrees on the fact that if and when CWD gets onto the refuge, it will be catastrophic. Remember, in a previous clip, Harold Turner of Triangle X called CWD a really bad disease, although he did then call CWD a shill for getting rid of feeding. Meanwhile, Glenn Taylor said CWD would kill 60% of elk, before questioning whether he really believed it. Both acknowledge the potential severity of CWD, but then go on to express their doubt about the whole thing. There are certainly shades of gray with it, but basically everyone agrees that if CWD were to get on the refuge, it would be catastrophic. The more stark disagreement here is on the other side of the coin. In other words, what will happen if we end the feeding? Remember, people like Bernie Holtz and Harold Turner predict that phasing out feeding would result in a 70 to potentially 100% loss of the Jackson Hole elk. So what about those who do favor phasing out feeding? One thing to note before we dive in is that no one is advocating for quitting feeding cold turkey. It's clear that such an approach would have drastic and unilaterally harmful consequences to those involved. In contrast to Holtz and Turner, Here's Conservation Director for Sierra Club, Wyoming, Lloyd Dorsey. Well, some people might think that all the elk that have found their way during their lifetimes to the elk feed grounds wouldn't be able to survive the phase out of those artificial feeding operations. That simply is not true, and we know that by experience. There would not be that catastrophic die-off of elk if the feeding were carefully but expeditiously phased out. We now have better protections for winter ranges on the public lands in this ecosystem than we did a hundred years ago. It has been done before. There have been elk feed grounds that have been phased out in western Wyoming and eastern Idaho, and it's been successfully done. So the science is clear, and we have those very winter ranges in the Grovant Valley, in the Buffalo Valley, in the Green River Valley, and other areas of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem that can sustain bountiful herds of elk. Those who advocate for the elimination of feeding believe that a phasing out of the feedlots wouldn't be as catastrophic as believed by folks like Turner. 
They argue that there's now a lot more publicly protected land than there was in the early 1900s, during the catastrophic elk die-offs that sparked the feeding to begin with. So, elk would be able to migrate and feed more freely. They also point to the fact that feeding has been phased out in neighboring states like Idaho and Montana, and in no cases have we seen change on the order of magnitude offered by Bernie Holt. Over the last 25 years, every top manager of the National Elk Refuge has expressed worries about the spread of CWD and have voiced their support for discontinuation of feeding due to CWD. In 2017, longtime Elk Refuge senior biologist Eric Cole issued an informal report about CWD, which stated that, quote, infection in the Jackson Elk Herd is inevitable and possible at any time, end quote. This opinion has been backed up by leading biologists, wildlife veterinarians, and epidemiologists, as well as a variety of environmental advocacy groups and nonprofits. In a deeper sense, the folks that advocate for the phasing out of feeding are animated in a large part by a deeply held trust in science, an emphasis on landscape-scaled ecosystem thinking, and a commitment to upholding some sort of ethic of wilderness, maybe at the cost of other ways of life and traditions. Like we mentioned earlier, there are some who oppose a phase-out of feeding because of its potential impact on outfitters and revenue brought in from the hunting industry. But when we zoom out, the revenue from guided elk hunts in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is one small piece of the ecotourism industry in the region. For better or for worse, big game hunting in the U.S. is declining dramatically, and at the end of the day, the continuation of tourism in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem depends largely on the maintenance of a particular pristine wilderness aesthetic, maybe more so than guided elk hunts. It's easy to imagine a pretty apocalyptic scenario in which elk populations do become infected with CWD at domestic level rates. Imagine tourists driving through Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Park, elk stumbling as the prions in their brains mutate, elk carcasses alongside the roads and throughout the parks. I think it's pretty safe to say that no one would want to go on that kind of vacation. And that fact would have serious and devastating impacts to the huge web of industries, businesses, communities, and individuals who support tourism in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Yeah, that feels pretty grim. Grim is right. In some ways, imagining that scenario adds an interesting dimension to Turner's presumption that all this CWD stuff is just a front for the wilderness people to make the landscape more pure. Maintaining the appearance of, quote, pure wilderness has long been a goal for many conservationists, whether they're explicit about it or not. But it is a reality that revenue from guided elk hunts is greatly overshadowed by revenue brought in by the, quote, wilderness aesthetic. Still, there's no doubt that CWD already has, and will continue to have, significant impacts on the hunting community at large and the individual experiences of hunters and where they choose to hunt. Here's rancher Brad Mead and conservationist Lloyd Dorsey. A lot of the people who make their living on tourism really think the elk herd's important and would like to see feeding continue. And I guess I can understand that as long as they're absolutely 100% sure that they're not going to get chronic wasting disease and hurt, but if they do, you know, it's related to mad cow disease and it's a, it's a scary thing whether or not it needs to be, I don't know, but I know that um, if I were hunting and 
it was brought to my attention that I was hunting in a place where there was chronic wasting disease, I'd be pretty leery about trying to harvest an elk there. I would hate to think that someday I wouldn't be able to hunt elk if chronic wasting disease, in fact, was a catastrophic impact on the elk herds in western Wyoming. And therefore, I think to sustain not only my own experiences, but the experiences of those who come after me, one of the best things what we can do is phase out the elk feed grounds. It's easy to think about hunting only in relation to outfitting companies, but that is a pretty one-dimensional perspective. If we think about this issue from an environmental justice perspective, another group arises that isn't really represented in many conversations about CWD. There are communities of people throughout Wyoming who rely on mule deer meat for subsistence, for whom hunting is part of how they provide for themselves and their family. And these people are already being impacted by CWD. Many hunters in Wyoming and in Montana and Idaho are choosing not to hunt in areas with documented CWD cases in mule deer, and the non-CWD impacted range is growing smaller and smaller. But why, why do they care? Have, have there been cases of people getting sick from CWD? No, there haven't. But what's telling is that both the World Health Organization and the CDC have recommended that people not eat deer, elk, or moose meat that has tested positive for CWD. So as CWD becomes more and more widespread, meat that is recommended as healthy to eat by two of the biggest public health authorities grows smaller and smaller. In that way, this whole thing is already an issue of environmental justice, of people having access to healthy food. And then there is this one last big looming question, a sort of proverbial boogeyman in the background. Is there a future reality in which CWD jumps species? Could CWD be a reprise of mad cow disease? It's a scary thought, but there are some who believe it's possible, and the story of COVID serves as proof that we know very, very little about zoonotic diseases. Support for Yonder Lies comes from Wildlife Expeditions of Teton Science Schools. For over 20 years, Wildlife Expeditions has been leading educational wildlife tours in Jackson Hole, Grand Teton, and Yellowstone National Parks. To see wildlife and support education, visit wildlifeexpeditions.org. I think here it's worth reiterating again that though there are differing perspectives on how to move forward, differing trust in the data, differing beliefs animating what constitutes the good life, most everyone in this policy debate really does want the same thing, a healthy and large elk herd on the Jacksonville landscape in perpetuity. In this case, there really is a broadly accepted common interest to be achieved. With that said, the mission of policymakers or leaders here then is ultimately to define the political boundaries, i.e. be aware of all the myths and perspectives present, define the boundaries of our shared reality, i.e. assemble the best facts science has to offer on the issue, and choose the best course of action that fits within both of those boundaries that gives us the best shot at achieving our common interest. Again, having a healthy elk herd on the Jacksonville landscape. And this is a bit of a Jesse soapbox for a second, but another job of our leaders in situations like this is to make understood 
that although everyone is entitled to their opinion, those perspectives that fit outside of either our politics or our shared reality will just be less considered. For instance, Glenn Taylor's perspective that science shouldn't be a guide to management here just isn't particularly that useful of a perspective. Similarly, the perspective of some hypothetical scientist who was advocating for some enormous progressive management program who hadn't considered the deep-seated libertarian politics in the area would also not really be that useful of a perspective. So where does all this leave us? In 2007, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service put a bison and elk management plan into motion. This plan, which intended to decrease feeding, was immediately caught up in the courts. On behalf of a group of environmental organizations, Defenders of Wildlife sued the Department of Interior and the state of Wyoming in 2008, claiming that the bison and elk management plan was inadequate because it violated the National Wildlife Refuge System Improvement Act. The plan did not set a specific date for the cessation of feeding, and therefore, Defenders of Wildlife said, it disrupted the biological integrity of the refuge. The agencies argued that, due to the complex cocktail of factors that influence feeding, officials needed the ability to exercise discretion in order to maintain biological integrity on the refuge. The case was wrapped up in different courts until 2011, when a court of appeals ruled in favor of the agencies. In response to this lawsuit and increased concern over CWD, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife, in collaboration with Grand Teton National Park, Wyoming Game and Fish, and Bridger Teton National Forest, began working on an adaptive management plan to develop a framework to reduce supplemental feeding on the refuge in 2012. In 2015, the first draft of what would be known as the Bison and Elk Step-Down Plan was completed. But the involved agencies were not able to agree on details to move forward and implement the plan. Negotiations continued for four years. But then, as we mentioned earlier, a mule deer was found right outside the refuge with CWD, a sort of spark to rekindle the fire of action. In March of 2019, environmental group Earth Justice sued the refuge, demanding that they implement a step-down plan immediately. And on the very last day of 2019, December 31st, the long-awaited step-down plan was released to meet an agreement made with Earth Justice from the previous lawsuit. Which begs the question, what does the step-down plan actually intend to do? Essentially, the plan intends to phase out feeding in order to avoid winter densities of elk that would contribute to the propagation of chronic wasting disease. The goal is to reduce the number of wintering elk on the refuge from 8 to 10,000 to around 5,000 animals. The first two years of the step-down program will focus on terminating feeding earlier in the spring, and in a few years, feeding will begin to be implemented later in the fall, thus compressing the feeding over the course of five years. The pace of the step down over five years remains flexible and to be determined by the harshness of the winters, among other variables. For now, irrigation will continue on the refuge. Hazing of animals by ATV will be used in order to keep elk away from private ranch lands nearby, which may seem like a weird tactic, but is something that's already used and used to great excess by the ref refuge today. The overall objective is to reduce the volume of elk and bison feed days to 
or less of the baseline number for five years in a row. Basically, they're hoping to cut the number of pellets in half and also hoping to move towards skipping feeding on average winters. So it's less of a phasing out, really, and more of a reduction. In the end, the plan is really neither of the two alternatives that have seemingly been in conflict over the past 20 years. What I'm left with is this. Will the step-down plan be enough to mitigate the potential impacts of CWD on the refuge and beyond? Will state-run feed grounds follow suit? Will that make a difference? Yeah, I'm not sure, but if if it's any indication, Earth Justice filed another lawsuit against the refuge just this year in February of 2020, with a resounding no as to whether the plan is enough. For better or for worse, time will tell. Have we done enough? Will we do enough? The analogy with the current moment is inescapable. The reality of COVID and the reality of CWD are asking us to adapt and reconsider our relationships with one another and the land. There's no way of predicting the future, but it is certain that what we decide to do or not do in the present and how we do it will echo into the future for years to come. If you want to learn more about chronic wasting disease, we suggest you check out Todd Wilkinson's four-part series on the topic on his website, mountainjournal.org. We'd also like to thank Danny Schmidt for allowing us to use audio from his phenomenal documentary, Feeding the Problem, which again, is free online. Technical support comes from Jackson's community radio station, KHOL 89.1, and the Northern Rockies Conservation Cooperative. A big thanks to the Jackson Hole Historical Society for providing access to hours of archival audio. Special shout out to Doug Haberman for our theme music and Becca Holdhusen for our beautiful cover art.